Welcome to Healthcare 2030. This program features conversations and interviews with respected healthcare industry experts discussing the latest topics regarding current issues today and the future of healthcare, innovation, and technology. To learn more about OxioHealth, head over to oxiohealth.io. That's www.oxiohealth.io. Now here's your host, Noel Guillama. Welcome to Healthcare 2030. My name is Noel Guillama, and I'm the chairman and CEO of Oxio Health Incorporated, a Florida-based healthcare platform company that combines services and technologies to advance the care of patients. I'd like to introduce Carl Larson, the COO of Oxio Health. Well, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Noel. And uh, this is uh, an exciting podcast talking about primary care present and future. I think uh, it's crucial, a crucial topic for us to discuss uh, right now. And I think there's so much going on in the industry that uh, uh, we'll probably make a couple of podcasts out of this. What do you think? Probably. I mean, one of the things that, that inspired the title of our podcast, Healthcare 2030, was recognizing, as we talked about at the beginning, that healthcare is going to have to transform. Right in order to meet the growing baby boom population, in order to use technology better. Um, I mean, you know, we're lagging as an industry, uh, not only banking, which is easy, but, you know, food processing and manufacturing uh, has more technology per employee than, than healthcare. And I don't mean like technology of, sort of the MRIs of the world. I'm talking about literally uh, the computers, the analytics, uh, all of that aggregation, all of that MIS system, management information system, is incredibly lacking in healthcare. Process side of things. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's a big deal. And I think now that we're c- coming up, at least in the United States, of a poke, uh, post-COVID uh, world, um, I think the problems are just becoming more acute and more more uh, intense. So it's not like uh, we, we, we didn't solve the solutions. The problems are actually worse. And one of the subjects or one of the, co- the the points of this conversation today in primary care is sort of what has happened post-COVID with primary care. And what are the big trends that we can trace back, frankly, to the 1990s? No, even what, before that, actually. It, yeah. What are the trends that started, you know, in 2000? What are the trends in 2010? And now um, it, some of those trends are really exciting, accelerating and becoming much more mainstream. And, and it's been tremendously disruptive for physicians. And particularly my favorite, which has always been primary care. Well, let's do something. Let's make sure that we bring our audience on board and bring them up to speed by giving a good, clear definition of primary care so everybody knows what we're talking about. Well, primary care has sort of a core uh, component, and then you've got sort of what I usually refer to as sort of, uh, you know, uh, expanded primary care. So primary care is obviously the family doctor, uh, literally, uh, that is general practitioner, period, no, no, no beyond that, and literally you can get certified in that. Um, uh, family medicine is, is, is a component of that. Um, you also have many times internists um, that are family care, but you also go a little bit further into that and you have uh, certainly OBGYN, or family care, or expanded primary care, pediatrics, Right. By definition, you know, um, children uh, at least uh, to the age of 12, 16, 18, depending on sort of the custom. Um, 
and and you know, it's like the proverbial sort of Marcus Welby, the generalist. Who? Uh, Marcus who? Marcus Welby. Marcus. Mark. <laughs> We're dating ourselves, but uh, well, no, you're dating yourself. I saw Marcus Welby uh, on the History Channel. Exactly. So, uh, yeah. So what what's happened in healthcare uh, over the last I don't know probably fifty years is you've had sort of less Marcus Welby and less general practitioners, less primary care and uh, on a numeric basis and, and more specialists. So you now sure. have high-end specialists, you know, let's call it, you know, cardiology, neurology, pulmonologists, uh, certainly. But, and, and then you have now then components of that, which is sort of geriatric something, right. okay? Or right. you have pediatric something. Right, even anti-aging. Uh, yeah, so you, you, you have, you could have very extreme things like that, that physicians that, that specialize in pediatric cardiology which is, you know, it's incredibly uh, a small group, but obviously uh, very critical. incredibly critical for, for pediatric and neonatal care. Well, let me ask you a question um, and just kind of throw this out for discussion. Talking about internists, family medicine practitioners, pediatrics, OBGYN, that's really the cutting edge of the what we would call community points of care. It's really crucial to overall population health and wellness that we have a strong primary care physician practice base within a community, wouldn't you say? It's fundamental. I mean, way back when managed care started, they used to use the term gatekeeper. And, and that term has been, you know, has been retired, okay, to, mm-hmm. to the sort of the, the heap of, of, of history. Um, because, you know, people don't like gates. They don't like things that prevent them from getting access. Right. But they, in fact, are gatekeepers. But better, they're, they're really care coordinators, okay? And physicians in that position are generally have the most amount of aggregated data on their patients because generally when they send a patient to a specialist, and, and again, you have different grades. You have physicians that are much, much more used to sort of diagnosing the problem and if the patient, let's say, for example, is a healthy patient, but may have high blood pressure, um, and otherwise there's no other indication, the physicians may say, here's your blood pressure medication, the primary care, and he monitors it, and you're good to go. Right. Other physicians um, choose to refer him to cardiologists. So the cardiologist may evaluate the patient, may do diagnostics, may not. Um, and then that patient then uh, is given the medication, in this case, of of of, of high blood pressure by the cardiologist, generally, I've always found it to be the case, in some cases it may not happen, is the cardiologist would send the primary care a report. Mm-hmm. Um, some really good doctors uh, actually call the doctor and say, here's what happened to your patient. It's really care coordination. Exactly. So, but, but the reality is the perception is that the primary care, certainly the referring physician, uh, is entitled to the information mm-hmm. and, and becomes a care coordinator. Um, then it gets a little fuzzy because then what happens is when the patient is is is, in, uh, is stable and is moving well on their uh, on on their on their care plan on 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 cardiology on high blood pressure or something like that, it's very possible that the primary care may continue that prescription and renew that prescription. Sure, sure. Okay, without any, if there's no incident, it's working. Well, don't you? Uh, would it be fair to say then that a primary care practice, for, in general, notwithstanding the fact we have a transient population, but that a primary care practice carries a patient from cradle to grave, pediatrics all the way through, potentially even geriatric medicine. I don't know about pediatrics. Pediatrics is kind of hard to pull, but but it, there's there is, and I have met physicians that have treated patients um, 
from, that's, from, that's, that's your family from, from their twenties kind of thing, that's literally your, to your Marcus Welby, right? To they, yeah. they to they mature depending on the age of the physician. Remember, because right. physicians generally are going to be much much older <laughs> than, a, than, than 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 a patient in their twenties for yeah, sure. Right. Um, so I can tell you that my father had uh, a lot of issues, um, and he was an assisted living facility assisted living facility uh, uh, for a number of years. Um, and he still had the same primary care that was monitoring him. Yet he had other specialists and things like that. Right. Uh, so but that's continuity of care too. Right? It's really, really important. And part of the challenge that we have in the United States, and particularly, I think, I think, I and we could talk about this one day in a whole podcast. Is the I love talking about the opportunities in te- technology and healthcare, but the reality is that we cannot completely ignore the challenges that. Technology is caused in healthcare, yes. and not the least of which is physician burnout. That we can talk about, and and actually creating just deeper silos. The idea, the fantasy that we, that many of us had, including myself, was that we get the, all the information in the patient's medical record, and we get the patient's records to talk to each other. That we have sort of you know, um, you know, a perfect world. Right. Okay? Right. And the reality is that it's much more difficult than that because it's not just technology obstacles. But behavioral obstacles, mm-hmm. um, and 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 uh, the, the the continuation of the patient doctor relationship uh, is to how many years it lasts. So what happens is you end up with just deeper silos in many locations. So let's 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 talk for a moment about some of the pressures on a primary care physician, on a primary care physician practice. I mean, you've got the revenue side of things that uh, that we can talk about. We've got you mentioned the electronic uh, medical record and and the the burden that that has that has instead of alleviating on the physician is actually created for the physician, and then the regulations the regulations that have been coming again and again and again, growing every year. So uh, which one do you want to start? So with? so one of the things we can talk about is 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 the burden on the physician that yeah. I have I have personally witnessed for thirty one or thirty two years. And it, it, the burden is that the government has put more regulations because it's trying to control the quality. It's trying to control um, um, uh, it potentially, um, uh, uh, how do I say this, uh, abuse of the system, abuse of the system, some cases even fraud. It's very common, particularly sadly in Florida, where we live, to physicians and others um, um, to be indicted. Uh, for some kind of, particularly Medicare fraud. Right. So the government has that incentive. The also government is paying for the healthcare, so it wants to make sure that the quality is there. So there's a lot of reporting back to the government. Well, it's paying it's, for the Medicare. That's so, particular yeah. Medicare or Medicaid, both Medicaid, are the big components. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's a very big deal for the doctors that continues to have burden. And then when you're dealing on, on the other side of the, of, of, of the payer mix, you have commercial insurance uh, that generally has a lot more control. It does generally pay more, so that's a good thing. But it also has a lot more control. For example, going back to that term gatekeeper, uh, when managed care originally started back in the 80s, um, the physician, uh, the, the, the next tier of referrals needed, had to have a primary care referral. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it couldn't happen. Mm-hmm. So it, what, what it did is it slowed care. It, there's no evidence that it made it any better, for sure. Right. And then what happened is it also overburdened the doctor because a typical doctor, especially over a patient, a pa- a patient of the age of 65, is going to have a couple of three prescriptions at any visit, and is going to have one or two referrals almost at any visit. Mm-hmm. So what happens is you have a tremendous burden, and then 
the doctor wasn't getting paid for that additional burden because he only got paid for seeing the patient. Yeah. Today, there's a little bit more compensation based on care coordination, but that's really a modern invention. So if he's only getting paid when he sees the patient, what happened during the COVID lockdown when so many practices couldn't even open their doors? You know, were... that's a really, really good point. And I don't know if, I don't remember if we talked about it here recently, but many practices lost 70, 80% of their revenue base. The government um, created a couple of programs to try to soften the blow. Yeah. First of all, Medicare gave the doctors an advance based on their historical billing practices and literally just sort of wrote them a check and it got deposited in the doctor's office. They didn't even know where it came from. But that was a loan, though. Was no, that was just, that was actually, let's call it prepayment. So the doctor, let's say, did $10,000 a month so with so Medicare. prepayment, he had to work it off. Exactly. So she. it wasn't a gift. Right. So the doctor, if he normally did $10,000 a month in Medicare on an average month, what Medicare did is they went back and they said, based on this, we're going to give you a few months worth of care of prepayment, and then you work it out. I think it was over a year, two years. It's not that important. Eventually, the doctors for sure worked it out. The challenge was that 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 what you're doing is you're getting the cash flow to survive, but then now you're squeezing the cash flow going forward. Sure. That's a problem. The yeah, second thing the government did is it made physicians eligible for, for PPP loans, um, which is uh, loans that were created for small business. So they're small business like everybody else. Right. Um, and there were other programs, and those could be forgiven, and I've suspected almost all of them probably were, will, will be or were forgiven already. Um, so the, the problem is that the doctor still had the burden of the rents, in many cases still had some employees, and the volume, um, it, it, as of the last count, was probably back up to 80%, mm -hmm. but it's not 100%. So uh, let's say it stabilizes at 90%. I don't think it'll, I don't think it's across the board it'll be 100 uh, for a while, because I know people that are still not going out. I know people that are still not interacting. The government on the other side uh, also made it a little bit better for physicians by allowing them to do telemedicine and be paid on a par with an office visit, which is which is at least gives them some, especially during the, the summer months of 2020, 2020, it allowed the physicians to sort of survive, economically survive. Um, but I completely expect that that will be that that will be that will sunset. There's going to be a rollback on that. I think it'll just sunset. I yeah. think it's officially it's supposed to set. I think it's September. I don't think yeah. it'll be extended after September, which is okay for the physicians because they should be back online. The question is, what's their new base? What's their old base? And 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 by the way, what we're not talking about is how many people just moved around. Correct. So, for example, in places like New York, the city of New York, Manhattan. Uh, people moved here. Other, <laughs> don't say that. But yes, don't, they found out somehow they discovered where we live. Yeah. Um, but other places. I've been in listening to our podcast. I want to come down. In, in California, a lot of people moved. You know, to Nevada, and New Mexico, and Colorado, mm -hmm. Texas. Texas. Okay, some famous people moved to Texas. So what happened is those those now, you know, you had a you had a you had a machine that wasn't well oiled or well running, but it was running. So now you've got the disruption. So you've got now physicians that have, you know, huge hole financially in 2020 that was partially made up, but it couldn't have been possibly made fully made up. Then you have um, the, the the continuing pressures that go back to 19, the 1990s, which is sort of reduced reimbursements uh, at across the board, okay? Because sometimes they raise it on one specialty and they bring it down on another. But across the board, mm -hmm. they've been going down, adjusted for inflation, period. Uh, even though the, the gross number for the government has actually been going up. Right. So what I'm what I'm understanding is that on one side, you've got sort of a decreasing revenue stream 
And on the other side, we know costs have been rising. Right. So there's there's sort of a, a double hit. Now, of course, that's not true only for physicians. Most small businesses suffer from that same type of pressure. But one of the things that is concerning to me personally, I'll mention, uh, it's a difficult subject, but uh, talking about physician burnout is the rate of, of uh, physician suicide that by uh, reports from the AHA, AHA are up to twice that of any other profession. And that's serious. And couple that with the with normal attrition plus the added attrition of physicians who just walked away from their practice uh, resulting from this the, the cope from the pandemic and the lockdowns, uh, it seems to me that we've got a real diminishing supply on the on the physician side, if I can say it that way, uh, decreasing supply of medical professionals, which is which is a problem for society. Yes, okay, it for is. Sure. I mean, other than than, than the tragic loss. Yes. And yeah, I, and my concern, I will tell you, is I don't think it's over. No. Okay, because I think what happened is we're going to have I don't know what they're going to call it, but we're going to have sort of a COVID hangover in healthcare that is going to include the hospital systems. Well, it's a big cloud, really. That's kind of. Well, you just move. Over. You just move things. I mean, think about that. That proverbial thing of the python you know, eats an animal and it just goes through the python, right? Right. Uh, that's what I think is going to ha- is happening right now in healthcare, and the biggest impacts are going to be to hospitals for sure. The hospitals are nowhere near the, out of the woods, even though they've gotten hundreds of billions of dollars in relief. Uh, physic- patients are very concerned. Some patients are very concerned about going back to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Some people have deferred uh, surgeries and. Uh, those surgeries, most of them will come back, but many will not come back. Well, there were articles so. that we read back in in April of 2020 that the uh, cancer um, uh, diagnoses were down by 30 percent. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, we know that was not a that was an accurate number, but cancer did not just materially reduce by 30% simply because it was afraid of COVID or something. Of course, of course. course. So we've got a real issue there of of latency in the system with respect to medical needs of the population that we haven't caught up to yet. Right, and that's what I was calling sort of, in my my term, sort of the the hangover. It's going to last for a while. Mm -hmm. And my concern, and what I'm watching is the primary care is the most vulnerable, and the difference between the small business that you mentioned and primary care and doctors in general, but primary care even more so, yes. is they have no pricing capacity. They can't raise prices. Mm-hmm. I mean, a doctor can raise prices all he wants. He's still going to get the same payment from Medicare, Medicaid, and the insurance company. Right. Well, you want to talk about resilience um, with respect to a, a business. You know, being on the lower end of the pay scale, uh, the primary care physician being on the lower end of a sort of all the overall physician pay scale as we've as we've seen uh, and your comment about the lack of pricing capacity and elasticity in the pricing um, that speaks directly to resilience the right. fact that they have none really. right and, and at the same time you now have um, you know pressures and we talked about technology even though we spent uh, Thirty billion dollars putting EHRs and doctors and hospital facilities over the last decade. Yeah. Um, the reality is that doesn't stop. Right now, no. the the systems are getting upgraded, and the doctors are going to have to pay more 
because the technology costs is more. And in fact, the reality is that most you know, EMR companies don't make money. Um, the big ones do, the Epics, the Cerners, the Meditech, the Allscripts make money. And maybe others that, that just don't have public information, but a lot do not. Yeah. Because they're selling a product um, that has a, a long recovery time because they're doing it on a, on a, on a per physician component. Um, and the government continues to expand what the, the, the technology companies have to provide. They have to find a way. There is pricing capacity a little bit between the technology company and the provider, okay? But there's none between the provider and the patient or the you know or the payers. Payer, right? So there, right. but but there is a, a, a limit that doctors can afford. So what I think you know, I guess my, part of my point is that we have way probably way too much technology in healthcare that isn't being used correctly. Well, it's misplaced in a way, and, and it yeah. isn't used correctly because right. it you have sort of a, a vendor vendee relationship, a buyer and a seller of technology. Um, and and uh, that's not that's not efficient. It's not efficient, and it's it's very difficult because it's also incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult for a doctor to switch EHRs. And it's not like changing tires in your car. Right. It is a monster commitment of time and money, and doctors really have no time and very little money at right. the end of the day. Yeah. So it's something that they will work around. They will struggle. They 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 will you know sort of hold their nose as as we say sometimes, and just plow through it through which the contributes more to the burnout which goes back to your burnout so i think the burnout problem um is probably underestimated yeah. um i think double is a scary number yeah but i think it's actually worse and i don't think it'll get any better because now the physicians remember the physicians are not you know bots they're human so now you're dealing with traditional challenges of a human okay relationships economics all these other things that are happening parents i mean covid's been disrupted they have the same they have the sure. same they, they have the same family as everybody else has, mm -hmm. so that's on top of everybody else. So everybody's is suffering uh, from some you know some some um, COVID related issue, right? COVID related issue, right? Physicians still have that on top mm -hmm. of their business issues, You're right? Uh, and also think about it because we've seen it. People are moving around, so the, many people have been moving around in the United States and going from south to north, from east to west, and west to east, and and et cetera. So you've got pressures mostly, of family moving north, around. Mostly north to south. Mostly right? north to south, but there's a lot of people, as you know, in Florida that are moving north. So yeah. it's, a, it's a rare thing, but it happened. Yeah. Certainly to like Georgia and Tennessee, things like that. Right. So you've got people moving, so now it's disrupting their employees. Right. So that's another layer. You've got layers yeah, over layers over layers. And we've, we've always had a transient population, but it's even more so, I think, now, I think what we're seeing. Right, so, so physicians are, are in a really tough spot. And, and, and the summary of that is, is in, you know, in 2018, the AMA, American Medical, American Medical Association, did a survey, and they determined that about a half of physicians, about 59%, were no longer independent physicians that worked for themselves. They were working generally uh, for hospitals or large groups, including, you know, insurance companies. You had, you have, uh, you know, United Healthcare that owns a humongous practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, of physicians, about uh, $14 billion of revenue. You have Humana that owns a humongous practice of physicians, billions of revenue, and uh, you have many others. So you now have potentially uh, venture capital, isn't it? So you got so you got hospitals, insurance companies, venture capital, et cetera. And, you know, this goes back to something that's happened many times before, or at least twice before. Uh, in the 90s, it happened where you had what were at the time called physician practice physician practice management companies. Right. 
They were acquiring doctors and, and basically rolling them up. Most of those were in the specialty area. Mm-hmm. I know because I worked in the space, mm-hmm. whether it was orthopedic or, or, or something like that, uh, or cardiology, cardiology. Uh, were big deals. And what they found out at the end of the day, almost none of them survive. Ours was one of the ones that survived. What they found out that it was very difficult to create that kind of practice in a, in a, in a, when you still had pressures of managed care. And very few companies made the switch from fee-for-service uh, healthcare to managed care. Mine was one of them that made the switch. And the reality is that the opportunity now and the challenges now are exponentially bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I can tell you that Medicare managed care has grown up, has grown by 300% between you know the, the late 90s and, and today. And I suspect, so right now, Medicare Advantage is about a third of all health, Medicare. Nation, I, nationwide. Yes. Nationwide. And right. others, in states like where we are living, right. uh, it's well over 50%. And in some counties in where we live, it's over 70%. Yeah. So the reality is that in many states, you know, if you take that average, right, you, in many states, in many locations, the, the penetration may only be 15 or 20%. Right. Um, so the 33 is sort of a gross number. I'm expecting that number to grow at least by double. So you're going to get somewhere around 60 to 70% of all Medicare by the end of 20, of this decade, 2030, is going to be in some kind of managed care. Or uh, the latest term, and we could talk about that later, is you know direct contracting. Right. So you had, originally it was called the, the it was, actually originally it was called the IPAs, right. then it became the MSOs, Management Service Education, then it, then it became a PSN, which is a, yeah. pro, pro, a provider-sponsored Sponsor. network, then it's become, and then these are you know variations of each other. Right now, you have as of this year, you have an ACO, but the ACO is going to basically be extinct, in my opinion, in the next twenty-four months, if not sooner. Actually, no, in the next twelve months, if not sooner, because now Medicare has created something called direct contracting that allows physicians or groups of physicians to contract with Medicare in sort of a hybrid model that takes a little some of the components of the ACO and takes some of the components of the insurance companies and basically says to the doctor group, e- either you have partial risk, which means the, the better you control costs, you know, we'll give you a supplement, uh, or you have full risk, which means we're going to give you, I think it's 97%, but it could be 95, uh, of whatever our average costs based on age, you know, sex, and and uh, and and uh, risk factors. Okay, right. Um, we're going to give you that number. Okay, and you're going to have to manage it to the extent that you manage it well in the group, in the aggregate. Then you get a surplus. Um, to the extent you don't, you owe us money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think that model is going to work either. Yeah. Just like I predicted in our po- in our blogs, I'm not sure in the podcast, ACO is not going to work because what they're trying to do is uh, the government's trying to basically get physicians to become more sophisticated in financial management, financial tools. Which is not what they went to school for. Which is not only what they went to school, but it's really, really difficult to do um, because you need to have a collaboration between the care provide, the caregivers and, 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 and the managers. And the managers can be doctors. Most of the time, they're not. Right. So that, 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 that is really, really important. And, and, and the biggest thing that, the biggest, I think, obstacle to physicians do it very well uh, in, in either the original ACO model or in the direct contracting model is investments. The doctors group are going to have to invest 
significant amounts of money in technology. Significant. Well, you can't that, do it the way you're doing it. Let me finish. Yeah. And then the second thing you have to invest in people, care coordinators, care managers, those kind of things require an upfront investment because whatever, right. the dollar that you save today, okay, is going to cost you today, but you don't, you get that dollar in 18 months. And you only get a dollar. You don't get the inflated dollar. Right. Well, but the reality is that you have to invest up front and wait a year or two, almost two years mm -hmm. to receive the investment that you made. You don't get it immediately. So these issues is, is do you, are you, are you suggesting this is one of the reasons why we're seeing or had seen perhaps uh, a migration uh, of, of physicians out of private practice and up into the hospital to become the hospitalist because there's there's more security, there's less liability, there's more uniform uh, income, maybe less, but at least there's 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 a little bit more security in that. Is sort I mean, of. I mean, first of all, let me correct it. Hospitalists are a category of specialty of physicians. So hospitalists right, right. are physicians that are that are, whether employed by the hospital or not. That only practice in the hospital. In the hospital, okay? right? That's that's a component. The, the, the what we're talking about is physicians that are employed by the hospital. Okay, they could be employed under the hospital's banner name, like like Cleveland Clinic or Mayo Clinic. They're employed and they're, they they practice. You know, their business card, their office is Mayo Clinic, geriatric care or something. Uh, and then you have physicians that the, that are owned by the hospital. They may still practice under their name. Uh, as far as the the, cus the 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 consumer, the customer, or the patient, uh, and the pa the patient may not know. Now, the reason why hospitals generally do that, there's a couple, maybe three reasons. A, the traditional historical reason was to expand care in a community. So, if you had a community that did not have a certain type of specialist, and because it was not economically viable for that speci specialist to set up his practice, the hospital uh, legally can go in there and help that doctor set up his practice, okay? Uh, and give them benefits and services to, to, to shore up that practice because they did know that there's a deficiency of care. Um, the second thing uh, is that the, 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 the hospital wants to make sure that it has um, a, a natural, organic revenue uh, or, or, or admission um, a stream because the doctor needs an admission, he's going to send them to the hospital. I think by law they can't be required to, but they're going to. Why? Because they're on campus, they're there, it's convenient, he knows the doctors. So it's totally reasonable right. that a doctor employed by a hospital would send them to the hospital. Right. Um, and he would have a great relationship with the other providers. And the technology side, the hospitals can invest and do invest. So if they're using Epic, for example, the, 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 the doctor, including in primary care, can refer to a specialist also using the same system, also the same platform. And if the patient has to be admitted to the hospitals, they could be admitted and they're still on the same system. So an integrated system is kind of cool, no question about it. My personal challenge with it is that when you throw the hospital in, it throws the incentives out, mm -hmm. it throws the cost structure out. Cost, uh, and then and then what happens now is in a post-COVID world, most of those hospitals had to continue to pay the physicians because they were under contract. Right. So the hospitals, you know, spent a lot of money. Well, yeah. The challenge that you have on the other side from physicians is that, that hospitals are bureaucracies. I mean, I've been in hospitals. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're designed to be. They have to. They're an institution for, for a reason. Well, yeah, and I was going to go there. I mean, what is it? What does all of this do to the cost structure? And what does it all? What is, what does this do to the cost of healthcare? 
I mean, well, health, I, I don't think hospitals are more efficient than individual practices. Well, they're, obviously they're different, but I mean, right now, the single largest component in healthcare in the United States is hospital admissions. Yeah. Okay. Um, so th those are the components that you have. Um, one of the reasons, the third component that I talk about why physicians or hospitals buy doctors uh, practices is usually, or not usually, but one of the, th is because they want to go into sort of uh, the integrated delivery of care, you know, and be part of an ACO. So an ACO, one of the part, one of the things for, for what was called Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, was to create incentives for large delivery systems to collaborate and because they were had the opportunity to make money or save money and the government could share with them. The overall program, at least in my opinion, has been a humongous failure because even though economically it has worked, uh, because you had a few outliers, a, a couple of dozen ACOs that did very well, right. if you measure all the ACOs over time, 90% did not do well. Um, and those 90% were generally you know, pretty much controlled either directly or indirectly by you know, sort of these large institutions, these large integrated delivery systems. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, in fact, I, I believe, and there's justification for saying the ACO model didn't work. Let's go try another model. And the one thing that Medicare has done over the last decade is they literally have a center for, for, for advancement and innovation. So they're, they're, they're trying to experiment, and that's, that's to be commended um, because healthcare is incredibly dynamic. There's no easy system. And usually when you plug a hole in healthcare on a certain part of it, Two other holes show up on the other side, so it's really difficult. So those are the three components. Kind of, kind of the Dutch boy and the dyke. You know, yeah. So what, those are the big components in in physicians, uh, and the reason they've gone, as you said, is at some point uh, they they they're close to burning out. They're they're struggling, and one of the things that hospitals does, and it does for the hospitals too, is the hospitals that I have seen always charge more. Okay. Uh, and negotiate higher prices for their medical group than the greater group have. Right. The challenge that you have... Well, they have a different cost structure. Exactly. The challenge that you have is you have sort of a diminish, diminishing number as more people more people go into Medicare, or and then more people get into into, into group purchasing organizations mm -hmm. or become part of an HMO. So in Florida, right. the big behemoth in Florida is Florida uh, Blue Cross and Blue Shield, right. which is a great company, and that's what we use. Um, it's a great company. So that company has tremendous amount of power negotiating with the hospitals. Did we, we want to say that again? That's a great company. It is a great company. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I mean, I'm not on their payroll. I think it's a great company. I hope Blue Cross and Blue Shield is listening. Uh, it's a great company, and 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 you know the thing is, I every now and then you you'll get a huge clash. Humana's good too, though. Well, but Humana's on the other side, so yeah. you you end up end up with clash between a. A large payer, which right. is Blue Cross and Blue Shield, right. against a large hospital group. So in Florida, we have a, maybe a dozen big hospital groups right. that are regionally based. So I can tell you a couple of hospitals in Miami and in Palm Beach County. Uh, in Orlando, there's two monster hospital groups with like two that are sort of appendages. Mm -hmm. uh, so you end up with this, you know, um, it, it's almost like a coliseum adventure where you've got these two monsters that are literally trying to sort of see which one can either, by the way, Maybe not get up, you know, um, you know, take advantage of, them, but just survive, right? Because if the hospitals right. are doing most spectacular enough, it won't survive. And technically, um, if the insurance costs uh, go up, it also has a challenge because it has to push that down to the consumer or to the employer. Um, so it's a challenge. So um, I, I think it's probably a good 
good place to stop. And let's 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 continue this conversation in the next podcast. What do you think? I, I, I think so. I think one of the one of the elements I'd like to throw back in is you talking about the transient population and the ten thousand people per day in the U.S. that are that are turning age sixty five becoming eligible for for Medicare. I mean that creates a huge demand flowing against a diminishing supply on the physician side. And in states like Florida, which is a retirement state, people are flocking in here, retiring, and it's putting a, a huge burden into the healthcare system. So maybe maybe that's something now, that we can roll. We'll, we'll also talk about uh, about the, the sort of re-emerging because they've already existed re-emerging models right. of private companies uh, that are getting into the primary care space to mm-hmm. take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, many are offering physicians to be acquired, but not by the hospital. These private companies uh, that are much more dynamic, much more nimble that can bring the resources uh, to bear, both in personnel, uh, in technology, and in systems. Really, the fascination I've always had with healthcare is systems, Mm -hmm. uh, more than anything else. So um, we want to thank everyone uh, who's been listening to our podcast. This was uh, episode number 20, um, and it was titled, uh, Present and Future Primary Care. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, We thank you for all your comments, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To learn more about our company, please check out our website at oxiohealth.io. That's www.oxiohealth.io.